I believe I know most of you, but in case I don't, my name is Jack Waters. Um, I'm the youth director here. I've been uh, a part of this congregation at various times since I was 12 years old. Um, and I now have the awesome opportunity of, of, of kind of opening the Bible and, and preaching to you all. So I, I, um, it's, a real, it's a real pleasure to be, to be here now. Um, today is the circumcision and holy name of Jesus Day. Uh, Jesus, uh, David jokingly told me that I couldn't use the word circumcision in my sermon. Uh, so I'm just going to conspicuously drop it now and then not mention it again. Um, I think it is worth mentioning, though, given the kind of strange collect and whatnot, uh, that it, what it is and why we celebrate it. And I think it'll, it'll kind of tie in here in a minute. Um, it's the first step that Jesus takes to fulfilling the law of Moses, the thing he has to do perfectly. He has to live all of Israel's law perfectly in order to, um, in, in order to be brought uh, to, to save the sins of all of Israel. Um, so circumcision, this first step, is what is the ritual that brings him into the community of faith. Um, at this ceremony, uh, a name is also given to, to the boy, um, and for him it is Jesus, which means Savior, because he will save uh, the people from their sins. Um, this is a fulfillment of Moses' desire from the Old Testament passage that we actually read today. Let the Lord go into the midst of us, he says, for Israel is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The incarnation is his going into the midst of us. And by going into the midst of us, he is then raised up and crucified and murdered. But also victorious, for he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. But today, January 1st, his circumcision and naming is just the beginning. It's just step one of this process. It's the smallest seeds of what will become the tree of life. The fullness of God's kingdom, his plan of saving not just Israel, but all mankind. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so if you want to turn to the Old Testament passage, Exodus 34, that's where we'll spend um, the remainder of our time. Uh, the story opens with God speaking to Moses, but without much clear context. So I'm going to back up for just a moment for us. Um, this episode begins a couple chapters earlier when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, uh, only to find uh, the people of Israel engaged in idolatry to a golden calf, all kinds of sensuality, drunkenness, and sin. Upon seeing this, Moses is furious. He destroys the Ten Commandments, and violent, violent strife breaks out across Israel. The result is a disaster. Plague spreads across the land. Thousands are dead. And morale is through the floor. The triumphant people of Israel at seeing about uh, God leading them through the Red Sea and delivering them from Pharaoh just a few chapters earlier um, is no more. There's no resemblance to that people. Then God tells his people they must leave Sinai, the holy mountain of the Lord, um, Israel's physical connection to God. It is at this backdrop that Moses cries out to God, intercedes for Israel, and begs for mercy, that God would not abandon his people. He reminds God of his faithfulness and asks for a renewal of, um, of God's covenant with Israel uh, and, and a promise that God will still be there, that he will still be their God, and they will still be his people. Um, and the clear message of this passage that we get to read now is that God renews his people. Tim Keller gives a helpful definition of renewal as the intensification 
of the normal operations of the Christian life through the normal means of grace. Um, the intensification of normal operations of the Christian life through the normal means of grace. Uh, what would normal means of grace look like? Um, do Christians believe that God can speak to us through a burning bush or in a vision with an angel? Certainly. If any of those things have happened to you, please tell Peter or David. All right. Um, normally, the way God works is through, um, through reading his word, through prayer, through singing, through confession of sin, um, through, through each other, through family members, uh, through preaching. These are the kinds of normal signs, the normal ways that God works through his people. Um, but I think we see here is a kind of, uh, in all of those ways, however he uses all the things I mentioned, plus the, the more strange ones we see in places in scripture, uh, you see a couple of significant aspects to it, a couple of um, ways in which that renewal functions, which one is the conviction of sin, the second is uh, forgiveness, and a third is building up, encouragement. So the first we see in this story as well, as we see throughout scripture, is a conviction of sin, which leads to Israel repenting for their wrongdoing, the people of God repenting for what they've done wrong. Secondly, and God gives forgiveness, which leads to the restoration of a proper and healthy relationship with God. And thirdly, God builds up his people, not leaving them merely forgiven, but he also glorifies them. We might say he adorns them, completes them. So... I'm in this mode as Emma's pregnant. I'm thinking about parenting a lot right now. And as best I expect it, when you give birth to a child, uh, you don't just leave the baby in a corner and expect it to learn English and to clothe itself and to, you know, to, to, to eat and whatnot. No, you clothe it. Um, you instruct it slowly over the span of years. You would never expect to leave it to fend for itself. In fact, there's a, there's a funny early church pastor named Origen who uh, was... Um, who clearly had never had kids, he never had children, as you can tell, because he says um, of John the Baptist, there's a verse uh, in Luke, it says, John grew and became strong and was, a, uh, was in the wilderness until his ministry began, which to most of us sounds like he grew up and became strong and he went into the wilderness. But for Origen, he insists that this must mean that upon the birth of John the Baptist, he immediately on his hands and knees crawled into the desert, began eating bugs, and he remained until Jesus came. Um, which sounds so silly to us because it's so clearly at odds with how people are, how we act. But we are that small child in, 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 in many ways. Uh, even being forgiven of our sin, our selfishness, we are still naturally infants. We are uh, unable to provide for ourselves or live in harmony with God. So what does God do? He gives us practical tools, uh, gifts which we do not deserve to help us live rightly. Those tools, in time, are supposed to make us resemble our Father, uh, even mirror him. The very tools which help us live also make us reflect our Father, glorify him, adorn him, praise him, even as he adorned and encouraged us in the past, in the present, and going forward. So in the two passages immediately following this text, I know I'm dancing around this a lot, but I think by zooming out, we see a picture of what God's doing. By, uh, and the two things that happen immediately after this covenant renewal of God and his people, we see um, Moses delivers new Sabbath laws to the people of Israel, which might seem antiquated to us. And then the construction begins on the tabernacle, the movable temple of the people of Israel. 
um, this is the means of sacrifice and of worship. But this is significant. These three aspects of, of, of renewal, conviction, forgiveness, and upbuilding, appear throughout our lives, not always in the same order. So we see this pattern once in life, and we are confirmed in the church in faith with a profession. Many times across our lives, I think we see this pattern of renewal. Um, after grievous sin and restoration towards those whom we've harmed and with God. It can happen in baptism. We prayed in Psalm 8-2. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength. And I would argue most importantly, it occurs weekly in worship where we are convicted of sin, are forgiven, and draw near to the Lord in communion and in thanksgiving. That conviction, forgiveness, and that giving of new life are found so prominently in our weekly worship I don't think it will be far off to suggest that our souls have a deep need for this kind of regular renewal. This pattern keeps recurring throughout our lives as well. What is done in worship is, is shown in our everyday life. We are constantly being forgiven, we're being convicted, um, and we're being built up, we're being perfected. These normal means of grace are like the blows of a stonemason's hammer, chiseling and polishing us into a perfect sculpture a heavenly body. So today is January 1st, the beginning of a new year. Uh, it's a great time to talk about renewal because we all know we need it this day. Most of us have probably made some kind of, uh, of New Year's resolutions and they're popular because we need a kind of reorientation so every often to what is right, to what is good. Um, couples at some point in their marriage often renew their wedding vows. We celebrate birthdays with friends and we show up to it to show that they are our friend, but we are supporting them continually in their life. Um, we tell family members that we love them, even though they know that we do, um, as a reminder of this. Normal life naturally becomes rote, perfunctory, boring. We need renewal because it uh, fills what was old and what's become dry with new meaning, perhaps a new way of looking at old meaning. It gives color to things that seem to become black and gray. If you haven't ever been renewed, this passage is saying to trust God now, for he can and he will give you new life. St. Paul says that our old man, our desires, our, our, our fleshly interests have passed away and the new man, us as new men and women, led by the Spirit of God, have come. He can take that weight of sin and guilt, which we so often feel, and free us from our imprisonment. No more self-condemnation, no making up for faults, covering up for what you should have done yesterday. He alone can provide renewal for us. And now many of us have known this renewal before of God, but it seems long gone, absent from our daily life. We feel this continual weight even if we know that Jesus, um, even if we know Jesus and understand his good promises. We may not have any major burden, but we feel subdued, we feel held back. Perhaps anxiety, which seems to... Uh, wrap around our hearts and leave us unable to breathe. It's sometimes it's hard to wake up and do the basic tasks of the day, not to mention or to think about the idealism of renewal and ideal worship and spiritual life. But if that's you, take Moses as your example. I say this with a word of caution. We shouldn't first see um, in the heroes of, uh, of the Bible our, our closest example. We more likely, we tend to be Israel more than Moses. Um, more likely rebellious and turning from God than examples of it. But 
they are our, Moses is an example, he's a type of Christ. He's an image of what we should be striving towards. In fact, um, in the Old Testament, you have um, Israel is called the body of Moses or the body of Joshua because in a way they're supposed to act out. They're the living body of that person. In some way, we are the body of Christ. So upon confessing the sin, look at verse uh, 2 here with me. Upon confessing the sin of Israel and wrestling with God that he would not leave his people, what's the first thing that God tells him to do? Come back in the morning. Which implies, go to sleep. See, when God first creates the world, on what day does he rest? The last day, the seventh day. He works for six. He strives for six. On the seventh, he rests. So for Old Testament Israel, we are told, the Old Testament saints, like Moses, strive for rest, only inheriting it in Jesus, in their future. But we are not striving for peace, for rest, or for perfection. Those things are already given to us in Jesus. For us now, as prefigured in this little story of Moses' rest, our rest comes first. Our rest, our day of worship, is Sunday, the beginning of the week. All our activity... All our holy labor is grounded in the rest and worship of Christ's resurrection first. Our obedience and faithfulness comes as a response out of that day. We work Monday through Friday, perhaps Saturday, but we're all doing that because of a rest that's already established, that God has already given us. Our obedience and faithfulness comes as a response after we are recalibrated, after we are renewed. There's a number of aspects to this I, I don't really have time to get into. Our Sunday rest reminds us of God's faithfulness. It renews our minds. It renovates our hearts. It rebirths us in the spirit of God. And it recovenants, or we would say it repromises us to our triune God. But what does this mean? This means for us, take a breath, slow down, and trust God. He is reconstructing and rebuilding us before we can do anything. If you are burnt out, and even if you don't think you are, do not forget that he gives to his beloved sleep. But we don't end there. We don't just let go and let God and see where the spirit of God goes. After this, after we have slept, after we have sought God's Sabbath rest, like Moses, climb the mountain. Mountains in the Bible represent the presence of God. God is on Mount Sinai. That's why believing it is such a big deal. Um, the temple of Israel is built on Mount Zion. Uh, the temples and altars were kind of constructed mountain throughout the Old Testament. They're a place that's created by man and God to meet um, each other. Um, where God descends and man ascends. Altars are also tables. Places where priests eat the sacrifice given by God. And God symbolically eats a thing given to him. Why do I bring this up? Because for us, our mountain is here. At the altar. At the table. We come to it prepared like Moses, with his chiseled stones ready to receive the commandments and the presence of God. We do not bring tablets of stone into God's presence, for he is in our very hearts. But we still must prepare those hearts in the same way that Moses prepared the stone. In the morning, or even in the car on the way here, say a prayer and prepare your hearts for worship, to meet him in the flesh and in his word. And then do that daily, because we daily encounter Christ. We daily encounter him in our prayer, and our scripture reading, and those who, who God has put around us. And then finally, when Moses descends the mountain, in the verses immediately after this, after God renews his covenant, which we read today, his face is shining gold. 
His reflection is awesome, for he reflected an awesome and a holy God. Notably, the book of Hebrews says that Moses still died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. For all Moses' proximity to God, we have more. Moses, with his tablets of stone in hand, did not have God so close as we have him this day. For he is in our ears, in our hands, in our minds, in our mouths, and in our hearts. If Moses, who saw God far off, radiated like the sun, what ought we look like who have God inside of us? When God made man, he said, let us make man in our own image. And we usually think of this in terms of the inherent dignity and worth assigned to people. And that's good, and I think that's true. But notably, that's not what most theologians throughout history have seen in that passage. They understood that man had God's image in him when we worshipped him and were bursting with delight and enjoyment and satisfaction for his commands. Loving his commandments and his presence and his duty as much as God himself did. That is reflecting his image. In Psalm 8, we read earlier that uh, man was declared a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and with honor. But whose glory and honor are we being crowned with? It is not our own. It's not our honor and it's not our glory. It is God's. In seeking our glory and honor, we can only gain wretchedness and, like the Israelites in the Old Covenant, be striving in search of a future rest at best. But for us, we seek to be a perfect mirror of God's goodness. We achieve the crown of honor, and then we are seated in the highest heaven. Do you exude anxiety in your daily life? Do your vocations as an employee, a student, a parent, a spouse overwhelm you? Seek not glory or privilege first in those passing things, but seek first the renewal of God and his promises. Then all those things will be added to you. So, concluding now, the fulfillment of Moses' plea at the end of our passage is that God would come to them and save his stiff-necked people. And that came true. And it ended the need for the old covenant with its signs and its shadows and the Sabbaths and tabernacles. We can finally labor knowing that our foundation is sure and our salvation is secure. I just finished reading through um, a book called Educated. Many of you may know it. Um, it's about a story of a girl whose parents, among other things, did not believe in uh, medical care. And so after a terrible car wreck, it left her neck, in, a neck increasingly stiff, stiff to the point she could hardly move it. She could not move it, um, and not only that, it affected everything else. She lost most of her flexibility. She was in constant, almost blinding pain. Her parents also didn't believe in pain medicine. She lost much motion of her arms, and it severely limited her range of sight. One of her brothers um, comes home after months away, and seeing her predicament and realizing what's going on, embraces her, hugs her, grabs her neck, and twists it to both sides, fairly violently, with a loud snap, and she collapses on the ground. I'm not recommending this for medical practice, clearly. She collapsed, and in her own words, she said she thought she was paralyzed. She thought she was dying. She hurt, she felt the, the snap from the top of her neck down to the bottom of her spine. But in reality, her entire spine was freed. She had all her capacities back. 
She could see again. She was no longer blinded by pain. She could run, no longer stiff. She thought she had come close to death, when in reality she had been freed from her imprisoned and shortening life. Moses asked for his stiff-necked people to be set free, and that's exactly what Jesus did. He came into our midst and then into our hearts, that we may be convicted of our sin, forgiven of all we did, glorified, and crowned with God's honor and God's favor.